messengers to the vineyard when they are beaten up. They're insulted. They're sent away empty-handed. Luke tells us that this happens three different times. Three different messengers are sent to retrieve the produce, and they're not only denied the produce of the vineyard, they're beaten up and they're insulted. Albert Einstein is credited with defining insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Remember that? Is that what's going on here? Is the vineyard owner simply insane? Does he think that these wicked tenants are going to treat the next messenger any differently? Does he think that these wicked tenants are going to treat the son any differently? One of the few television shows that we can watch together as a family, like we agree that we'll all sit down and watch it, is called Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen that? This parable reminds me of a really bad episode of Undercover Boss. It's an episode that I would turn off, one that I wouldn't let my children see. If you've seen the show, you know that there is always one employee, one bad employee who's exposed for laziness or for mistreating other people. But in this parable, it's all the employees. All the tenants are bad. And not only do they repeatedly mistreat and abuse the messengers, they kill the son, the actual undercover boss. Can you see it on your television screen? One of them says, let's off the guy with the glasses and the weird hairpiece who can't figure out how to toast a ham sandwich and then all of the subway will be ours. (laughs) And the response is, yikes. And that is exactly the response in the parable. The crowd in the parable says, heaven forbid or God forbid. And then Jesus looks directly at them and he says, you are exactly right. And yet the scripture The prophets and the Psalms are fulfilled in the parable that you just heard. And they will be fulfilled in the story that we will live out together. And the crowd gets it. And the leaders of the temple get it. They decide that they want to kill him. But they fear the crowd so they don't do it right then. There's something very straightforward about this parable. Most parables are pretty flexible. Like you can take the characters in the story and you can jump around from character to character and say, who is this and who am I? I tried that exercise with this parable and it just got really uncomfortable. And while a preacher is never supposed to give a cast of characters to a parable, I'm just doing it this morning. I'm going to spell it out. Because in this parable, Jesus stands in Jerusalem right before the crucifixion. He tells this story and everyone who hears this story gets it. Everybody knows what's going to happen. In the first century Bible, Kent Dobson says that this is Jesus' most important parable of self-disclosure. He tells everyone in hearing distance who he is when he tells this parable. So here's the cast of characters. Here's what there is to be got. The owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is the people of Israel. This is a nod to Isaiah's classic song of the vineyard that you find in chapter 5, where after singing about working on a fertile hillside, he says, The vineyard 
of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. God has invested time and work and care and patience in this vineyard, and God is expecting a return. Then the servants in this parable are the prophets, and the son is Jesus, and the tenants are the ones who are entrusted with the care of the faith. The title that I like best for this parable is the title, The Twice-Given Vineyard. The twice-given vineyard. You've heard the phrase, there's a new sheriff in town, and that's exactly what is going on here. There are new tenants in town. The new tenants are you. They're you and me. And the question that's staring us in the face is, what the heck are we going to do with this place? It's ours now. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that the first tenants, The first tenants had authority issues. They are completely disconnected from the owner of the vineyard. They aren't listening to him, and they aren't directed by him. They won't take any direction from him. And beyond that, the authority that they have over themselves, how they're going to be in the world, is lost. They seem to have no moral compass. They're simply aggressive and violent. Maybe it's because they're selfish. Maybe it's because they're greedy, or maybe it's because they're wicked. One of the titles for this parable is the parable of the wicked tenants. But a more charitable read might say that these guys are simply surprised. Maybe they're stunned by the messengers who appear at the gates of the vineyard unexpectedly. I'm often not my best when somebody unexpected appears at my door. This week I was... I was making dinner in a very quiet kitchen when Keith and Daniel came home from baseball practice and the doorbell rang. And so Keith went to the door to see who was there and the man at the door said, I'm here for Reed. And Keith said, who is Reed and why is he here? You know we have teenage girls, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Reed actually is a girl and Reed was in our back house with several other girls meeting for a small group of Bible study. But surprised by the messenger at the door, Keith became a little overprotective and a little defensive. Who the heck is Reed and why is he in my quiet house, you know? Maybe that's what's going on with the tenants of the vineyard. I can also imagine that maybe they're just stubborn. Maybe they're stuck in their way. I suppose that I have been all of those things, greedy and selfish and stunned and stuck. The way that Jesus describes his authority is that he quotes Hebrew scripture and he gives a word picture. That's not surprising. That's a very Hebraic way to teach. The picture that Jesus gives is a stone or a rock. And he says, this stone, this rock that I'm going to tell you about, this is the desirable authority. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. That teaching is a combination of Hebrew scriptures. It's a combination of Psalm 118, which we read with Ava this morning, and Isaiah 8. 
Psalm 118 is a song of praise. It's a song of Hallel. It was sung during major Jewish feasts. So Passover and Pentecost and Sukkot. And the verses that frame the words about the cornerstone talk about salvation. Save us. Even the word Hosanna, which is the word that we sing so often on Palm Sunday, on this very Sunday, it means save us. So these are the verses that you find in uh, Psalm 118 around the teaching about the rock. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. What this tells me about saving authority, Jesus' authority, is that it comes from a place of humility. So a cornerstone sets the angle uh, for the wall, the direction the wall will be built. And it bears the weight of the wall. And the word picture of the rejected cornerstone that, it, that you will not only find in the Bible in the Psalms, but you will find this image of the rejected cornerstone repeatedly in the New Testament. Jesus uses it, and then Peter uses it when he preaches in Acts. And then when Peter is writing in the New Testament in the first letter of Peter, he uses it again. This image tells us that we will find this important stone, this weight-bearing, direction-setting stone. You find that stone in the reject pile, in the pile that the builder said, these rocks are no good. So some say that when Psalm 118 was sung, people knew that that very image was about King David. Because King David was the least of all his brothers, and yet he was God's chosen ruler. So he was found in the reject pile, right? But I'll buy that, but I will also say that that could be said of many other biblical heroes. We could say that about Abraham and Sarah, who are beyond childbearing Age, but they will become father and mother of a nation. We find them leaders of the nation in the reject pile. It could be said about Jacob. Jacob, who's just this conniving wrestler, whose name is changed to Israel. It could be said about Joseph. Joseph is just the spoiled youngest child in a very large family. So his brothers sell him into slavery, and he becomes this royal consultant. And we could say this about Moses, we could say this about Tamar, we could say this about Ruth, that all of these direction-setting leaders came from the reject pile. It's a biblical pattern. And the second thing about this rock, the second thing, and this is the quote from Isaiah, is that the rock is probably going to trip you up. The quote from Isaiah says it's going to trip you up, it'll break you, it'll crush what you thought you valued. And so with this rock, there is a sacrifice involved. 
We have all been instructed, we've heard these words before, to take up your cross. Take up your cross as Jesus did. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. To make a sacrifice ourselves. I'm helped by the teaching that says a cross of my own choosing is not a real sacrifice. It's an ego sacrifice, but it doesn't go deep. It's not what Jesus is talking about in this parable. We all make ego sacrifices, and they're not necessarily bad, but they just build up the identity that we want. They build up what we choose. They can be difficult, but they don't trip us up. You know, I'm a mom of three, and sometimes that's hard, but I chose to be a mom. I want to be a mom. The same with being married. I chose to be married. I chose the man that I married. The same with being a pastor. I want you to know that I'm a pastor. These are all things that I do. They're all about my ego, the identity that I want you to know about. I was visiting with a friend this week who said, the last time I saw your daughter, she told me something that I didn't know about you. She told me that you were president of your sorority in college. What was that like? And I said, it was like a job that I did for free. But here's the thing about being president of a group. It wasn't a sacrifice. It was more accurate to call it a service. My ego really loved it. And I like to stand up here and tell you that I was president of a group, right? Now, sometimes a role where we serve, a place of service, becomes a sacrifice. So like when a soldier is injured in battle. We no longer thank him for his service, but it's more appropriate to thank him for his sacrifice, right? A parent whose child is diagnosed with cancer. That's a place of service that becomes a sacrifice, a rock that trips you up, a cross that you bear. When your spouse loses their job, and so you have to cut back, you have to do without, you have to take on another job. Those are all places of service that become crosses that we bear, that become sacrifices. We don't choose the difficulty. They are rocks that we trip over. It's really easy for me to stand up here and tell you about places where I've served, but it's harder for me to talk to you about places where I've sacrificed. Places that tripped me. But those are really sacred, holy spots. Jesus says that those are places of holy authority. You know, maybe that's why yesterday when I turned on the television, I could see that the march for our lives had gained such momentum. Because it was organized by people who didn't choose they didn't choose their place of service. They didn't choose the sacrifice that they made. They were the, it was organized by the students who survived the shooting at Marjorie Douglas Stoneman High School. So maybe because it was a place of sacrifice, that movement is gaining momentum. And maybe it's why um, Stephen ministers who are widowed or they suffer through cancer themselves or they lose their jobs, make really excellent caregivers. Because the authority that they have to care for other people comes from a place of sacrifice. I can remember 
years ago in this church, we had an intern one summer. And one Sunday, we sent that intern out to preach at the Riverside campus. And so the next Monday after he preached, I was just debriefing with him and asked him how he liked it. And he said, I loved it. I was sitting in my car after it was all over about noon. And Scott Hare, that's the pastor at Riverside, Scott Hare walked just a few feet in front of my car. And I actually had this fleeting thought, if I punch the gas pedal, I could take his church and become the pastor here. (laughs) That's just like the tenants in the parable, right? (laughs) That's just like the tenants in the vineyard. That's not holy authority. Our intern did give up his Sunday morning and he drove out to Bulverde, but he really liked it. That's ego authority. That's ego authority extreme. When Jesus describes his authority, he describes his authority like a stone. And he says, my authority comes from a place that you don't expect. It's a humble place, and it won't be easy. Jesus tells his followers, this is not going to be easy. The road that lies ahead of us, this road that lies ahead of us is going to feel like we're falling. The thing that Peter recognized, and that many followers of the way since Peter also know, is that this description not only fits our Savior, it not only fits Jesus, but this image of the rock, of a stone, describes you and me too. In the first letter of Peter, when he talks about the authority of Jesus, he talks about this cornerstone that's also going to crush us. He then writes, And you, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You may declare the praises of the one who calls you out of darkness into light. What Peter knows is that the vineyard is rightfully ours. I just wonder what we'll do with it.